Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we got to sit down with Katie Latke, who is the Programs Manager for Global Seafood Assurances. And she sat down to talk with us today about fishing and the sustainability around wild-caught fisheries. It's obviously a very big conversation and we're just scratching the surface here, but she gave us a little bit of a baseline to start with so we know kind of where we're at, where the fishery industry is at in regards to sustainability and what we need to do moving forward. So it was pretty... It was really informative and Katie is super knowledgeable about this topic. Yes, she She's is. been in both aquaculture and wild Mm -hmm. yeah she's been in seafood for about 10 years now so she's no joke she's no schlep like (laughs) us and she um you know she knows what she's talking about and she's just a deep well of knowledge in which we dove so look at you go i know (laughs) right not bad huh so get excited this is our first episode of the new decade Mm, oh yes happy new year everyone 2020 i'm sean o'laughlin and this is 2020 (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so we're we're in it. We're in the new decade. We're talking about some wild-caught fisheries. Obviously, it's not the only thing we'll, we're going to be talking about, but we wanted to start off the year with that because that is a major topic that we want to explore this year. So super excited. I hope everyone enjoys it, and I hope you remember to subscribe if you haven't. Rate, review the podcast Rate and if review you're listening the on Apple. Yep. Those reviews are super helpful for us, and share it with your friends. All right, let's get into it. Welcome, Katie. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. Sitting down with Katie Latke today, who is Programs Manager of Global Seafood Assurances. How's yep. it going? It's good. Great. Thanks for having me. Did you have a long walk over um, here? Yes, all the way across the office. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm winded. You might need to give me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to have Katie in here because she does, she's kind of the guru for all things wildcat in our office right now. She's She's the one that is starting to bring the two sides together here. So can you give us a quick background on yourself and who you are and where you came from and... How you got here. How you got here, yeah. Great, yeah. So I have been in sort of the seafood industry in different areas for 10 years now, a little bit over 10 years. Um, I actually started in aquaculture, so that's how I got into seafood. I had a marine biology background, but did my graduate work in sustainable aquaculture as a business development tool in East Africa. It's quite a mouthful. Wow. Very very general. specific. uh, Yes. (laughs) And also really interesting. Yeah. I had to learn to take Swahili in grad school. I can't. Did you ever travel over there? Yeah. Did you spend time Um, over there? I have not for work, but yeah, I've been over there. Cool. Do you remember how to speak Swahili? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Which there's been some people reaching out to us from Africa to like, yeah. hey, there's aquaculture happening yeah. here. Let's get on the podcast. Yeah, but it was in Swahili. I didn't understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, now we have someone who, who can interpret yeah, it. I <laughs> could probably translator. catch my name is, but then anything they said after that would be lost on me. So well, That's okay. As long as we have a name to refer to, then maybe we can <laughs> <Yeah>. search them <laughs> on Google. It's a place to start. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So I started there. I worked for um, the New England Aquarium out of Boston, Mass., And we were sort of like a consultant organization within the aquarium, and we worked with large seafood companies. So 
I was doing more aquaculture side then, um, mostly in farm salmon. And then the opportunity to move to Highliner Foods, which was a seafood processing company, came up. And so I was their sustainability manager for about three years. And so that's when I was able to kind of broaden, not just from aquaculture, but get back into sort of the wild seafood side, which is, you know, a lot of what I had studied in school. And from there, I came to Global Seafood Assurances, and I was able to kind of bring some of my knowledge from both wild and farmed um, into this title and this job, which has been really fun. So talk to us about, talk to our listeners about what Global Seafood Assurances is and does. Sure. So Global Seafood Assurances has sort of been built to provide assurances to the marketplace and to consumers about their wild seafood, similar to how the Best Aquaculture Practices program was built. So typically in wild seafood over the last decade or so, the focus has really been on environmental certification and environmental impact of wild seafoods. You know, we had a lot of fishery collapse in the early 90s, really brought that issue of overfishing and the environmental impacts of fishing to the forefront. And that was really the focus probably for the greater last two decades or so. Um, But we at Global Seafood Assurances has realized that sustainability is more than just that element, that there's an element of social responsibility, an element of responsibility at the processing facility, really from, you know, catch all the way to the consumer eating the product needs to have those same assurances. And so Global Seafood Assurances was (laughs) built to kind of provide that for the customer. Mm, I was drawn to GSA by the logo. Yes. (laughs) We have this amazing designer. And the logo was drawn <laughs> by you. Oh. Maybe, I don't know if you maybe, remember that. Maybe maybe, maybe that's why. It's We'd just so actually, catchy. It makes me want to learn more. We do get a lot of compliments on the logo. So, wow. Uh, yeah. A lot of people really like it. Does it still have the um, PT Cruiser feel to it? Yep. Uh, yeah. Wally really appreciated its retro feel, and I think yeah. that's why we went with that one. Mm-hmm. One of those reasons, mm. but if any of our lis- listeners, you know, also appreciate that logo, I would love to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> if, any, if anybody wants to make uh, Justin's head grow a little bit, yeah. send us a message. Podcast at aquaculturelines. Yeah, new year, new me. <laughs> Just kidding, same old me. <laughs> um, so I mean, why? So we know that Wally kind of is the, you know, the captain of this ship, and he he really is the one that's bringing this into existence, why did he feel that now is the time to to do that, do you think? Well, I I think we saw a void in that area, specifically around social accountability. So one of the primary projects that Global Seafood Assurances works on is the development of the Responsible Fishing Vessel Standard that we're working on in partnership with Seafish, which is an organization out of the UK. And the standard really focuses on, you know, social welfare and um, crew safety and crew rights on fishing vessels, which is something that has kind of come into the forefront in terms of sustainability in the seafood sector. And unfortunately, there were some practices that were not really great that had come to light on on fishing vessels. And, you know, we recognized that there really needs to be something in place that can protect those workers, protect their human rights, protect their safety, etc. And so that's where we kind of felt like we had really great competencies from the work that we had done at BAP to develop and implement standards and certifications. And this opportunity came up to build this and kind of take it broadly to the entire seafood industry. And so, you know, we thought, why wait? You know, now is now is the right time to kind of make sure that you can feel good about all the seafood that you eat and not just necessarily one type or the other. Mm. So I don't know if this 
if you can talk about this. But when you said there are some things that were coming to light on fishing vessels, yeah. what, what kind of things were happening that made people think that we need to buckle down and, and get get straight with this yeah i mean i yeah i can definitely talk about it i think it's out there it's it's in the it's press facts. yeah it's fact it's an unfortunate fact you know a lot of times big changes in industry that come from good ultimate sometimes come from realizing the bad and from there being pressure from the press and that's not necessarily how we want to drive big change but if that happens there can be an opportunity to really make a difference so you know some of the things that were happening on fishing vessels included kind of indentured slavery or just not appropriate working conditions that, you know, people really should have, um, working, you know, too long hours without an appropriate break. What's well, a dangerous, um, I mean, depending it, on what you're fishing for, I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, we've all seen dangerous catch and Most things of like that nature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's dangerous probably, already. It could be like one of those, okay, you guys are going out, taking the boat out, and I don't want you to come back until the hold is full. Right. Uh, and they might have not chosen great places to go, and they're out there for days and days at a time yeah. until and they. You, you could be out back. for days and days at a time, and you can, you know, you could be out for months and months at a time. But if you are going to be that kind of operation, you know, the crew needs to have a decent place to sleep. You can't be out for months at a time if they can't get good rest, right. or they need to have the, you know, a decent amount of rest time. And most importantly, if they say, I don't want to be here anymore, they have the right to get off the ship or off the boat. And so those are some of the really key factors that GSA focuses on when we're looking at our developing our certification and ensuring that the seafood you eat is not only environmentally responsible, but socially responsible. But how can you keep track of that? I mean, you, you can have audits on the vessels and on the companies, but how do you know that it's not happening when the auditor is not there? Like uh, yeah. that's I feel, I mean, That comes up with BAP too, yeah. right? But I feel like it's a little easier with BAP because that's you can have like surprise audits and, mm-hmm. you know, is a you know where the place is like people can go there and yeah. investigate if there's any question. But if these people are out on the sea for weeks at a time and there's no observer or auditor on it at that time. How do you how do you know it's not just still happening when you're not watching? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a fair question. And I think that. You know, certifications are often the first step, not necessarily the only solution. Um, Right now, we have nothing. We have no mechanism of being able to say, hey, you know, you've been audited. We know that you're doing the right thing. They're sort of just, you know, certain governments have stricter regulations than others. Other governments really don't have, you know, strong regulations. So right now, there's no good baseline. So certification can kind of provide that level of, you know, this is the first step. There's a lot of technology out there these days so you say you kind of say well we know where a farm is well to be honest we know where a vessel is many vessels have to use vessel uh, monitoring systems that use satellite to show where they are where they're fishing and then you know we have we're working on projects that can develop what we're calling a worker voice element so if you're out to sea and something happens that you know isn't right or that you feel unsafe you have an anonymous way to kind of make that known and then we can investigate those certifications or those issues. So we are going to grow as a certification too right. to continue to increase technology. You know, there are vessels out there that have video cams that can provide real-time footage. So there's just a real a lot of a lot of opportunity for growth, but right now there's nothing and we want to, you know, make that first step. So in past episodes we've talked about how sustainability is more than just environmental s- sustainability mm-hmm. and how it's it's just looking at a system as a whole and seeing if it's going to continue to be able to function at the capacity that it's mm-hmm. functioning at for long term. 
And since you have such a strong background in sustainability, like you even went to school for it, what would you say? So since we just went over, not many steps have been taken at all on a large scale within the wild caught industry. What do you think can be some steps that the industry can take other than certification? Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of companies out there who recognize some of the issues, whether it be environmental or social or, you know, even economic, and they can make choices to put in their own practices as a company, you know, to ensure that their product, you know, saying, oh, well, we're going to only source from something that's well managed, or we're going to have these internal checks for, you know, making sure that processors and vessels are acting responsibly. So there are a lot of companies doing different things out there. Um, And then, of course, you know, continued pressure from the consumer to say it's really important to us that we have seafood that we know is responsible, good for the environment, and good for me. You know, hey, my grocery shop, you know, what are you doing? And that really inspires companies to make change and to to make good choices. Mm. I think that it benefits so many industries that consumers are caring more and more about the sourcing of the food that they're eating because not only is it better for your health in most cases but it's also so much better for the environment and even these social cases also it just goes to show that consumers have more power than they think yeah. they do yeah well, if they sure. stop buy- buying a product altogether then what's you lose a lot there yeah so. Yeah, that's a lose, lose, lose all around the board. Right. People just stop buying it. So, you know, we talk a lot about aquaculture and sustainability around aquaculture. And I think based on a lot of the interviews that we've had and the conversations that we've had here, we have a pretty good grasp on where farmed seafood kind of fits within the discussion around sustainability. But we're just starting to kind of dip our toes a little bit more into the wild caught stuff, which is one reason we had you in here. And I want to try and talk about where is wild caught fisheries in that conversation? Like, where are they at right now in regards to sustainability? There have been some really great technologies developed, but um, there's also some stuff that's pretty lagging behind when it comes to sustainability. So in your mind, you have more time and experience in this world than we do. What do you see in comparison like for sustainable fisheries? Like where are they at? Is this like when we're talking sustainability, is it in its infancy, do you think? Or do you think that we're starting to make some strides and, you know, I don't, I don't are know. Are we a teenager now? Are we a teenager? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> That's scary. You know, to be honest, <laughs> I think we're almost a young adult. Um, All right. Why? So, yeah. Love it. Whole new category. <laughs> Probably so around about a age. sophomore in college. <laughs> Mental um, age. So, you know. What the the concept of kind of wild seafood and that lore around fishing has been around longer in terms of like in our conscious mind than aquaculture. Aquaculture has been around for thousands and thousands of years, but commercially to the point where people are kind of understanding what farm seafood is, that's really something that's been the last 50 years. Yeah. Whereas wild seafood, wild caught seafood has been a kind of a, a staple of many people's diets for Know, hundreds of years. We call it the last hunted protein. People still have that beautiful vision of the boat headed off on the horizon and coming back, you know, plentiful. And so there's actually been a little bit more um, movement around sustainability and wild fisheries over the last, you know, 30 years. Probably, you know, the first big time it came into people's minds was, you know, 
the cod collapse in northeastern Canada in, mm. in the early 90s. But essentially what happened is they discovered that there was about 1% of the biomass left of the eastern cod stock, and they completely shut down fishing. And it wasn't a reduction of quota. It wasn't, you know, saying, okay, fewer boats. It was done. Everybody's done. And I think the number is something like 35,000 people were working in, which is not, it doesn't seem like a lot, or maybe it's 350,000, but essentially whole communities were dedicated to catching and processing cod and it was just closed. And people realized that some of the impacts of modern technology, some of the changes in the way that they had fishing, that they weren't paying close enough attention Mm -hmm. to the stocks and what that would mean. Um, And so that was really when this whole thought of, environmental sustainability, sustainable fisheries came about. You know, since then, we've had certifications that have become developed. Probably the biggest one that most people are familiar with is the Marine Stewardship Council. Um, And there was a lot of work around kind of wild, sustainable seafood and getting stocks managed in a healthy way, not just from certifications, but governments began to realize that for financial well-being and, you know, longevity, they needed to be able to fish year after year after year instead of fishing something to complete depletion and then crashing an industry. And so management became more prevalent. States and countries were beginning to realize, you know, what it meant to manage appropriately. Certifications came into to roll and, you know, companies again put pressure on the fishing industry to kind of, you know, have certain certifications or act in a certain way. But just like with aquaculture or any food production system, there are good and there are bad actors. So we can't right. say that the entire wild industry is better or more sustainable. Um, there are areas that have really healthy, well managed fish stocks, and then there are still areas around the globe that are struggling or don't have the right management or the right laws or the right enforcement to really protect those that fishing level. Well, and you think aquaculture and that is done primarily, well, other than salmon on land. And so who can control that? Like mm-hmm. the local government. But when you're talking about the ocean, it's like international laws, I would assume, yeah. probably take place. And then maybe once you get in close to country borders, then maybe it's local government mm-hmm. regulations and who if some countries don't care and they just need to bring in fish like it's probably trying yeah. to find that yeah. balance well that's hard because the fish don't care about borders and about right. governments and, and laws they go where <laughs> they're gonna them. go yeah and <laughs> as as the climate changes and as the weather day-to-day changes i mean you're gonna get these fish in different places they're gonna mm-hmm. start migrating yep. to different waters than they used to so you know fishermen need to be able to adapt to that kind of stuff yeah. and and i think with things like climate change that happening more rapidly than it ever has that ability to adapt needs to happen sooner and i think it they haven't needed to do that in the past so i feel like fisheries is in a kind of a strange in-between place right now of this is the way we've always done it and this is the way that it should be done and they're just trying to figure out how they can kind of bring those two things together yeah uh, from what i've seen i mean and that you know fisheries have a like um, justin was saying you know one they're not necessarily fisheries can't be privately owned you can own your Mm -hmm. boats but the resource is a shared resource you know in school you know the the main example we always use when we think about tragedy of commons is seafood you know it's in your best interest to act for your best interest and if you choose to act for the greater good that doesn't ensure somebody else will and then you may end up getting less than Mm -hmm. you should or Mm -hmm. or need so everyone's kind of you know how do you manage a group of people to have everybody kind of agreeing to a set of rules and then how do you manage that fishery when you can't know everything so you know one of the main things that's important for good fisheries management is scientific data stock assessments how much 
fishes in the ocean. And you can know a lot of that. But because it's under the water and you can't, you know, be there all the time, you can't know everything. And so, you know, good fisheries management also has to include the ability to adapt quickly if you have changing waters. You know, you could be doing all the right things. And we have an example of this out on the West Coast, you know, great fisheries management, fishers are in compliance, good enforcement, and two, you know, two warm year anomalies can completely reduce uh, a recruitment class, which essentially means like the babies. And, you know, the entire fishery can come down 10, 20 percent, not necessarily anything that you did wrong, just a difference in the environment that you couldn't have necessarily expected. So you also have to be able to ensure that you're working within the precautionary principle that, you know, don't fish right on the very top of the hill. So any movement pushes you over. You have to make sure that you're in a stable state so that you can adjust for a one year that might be warmer or colder. You might have El Nino. You might have, you know, all these different effects that you can't you can't know or you can't guarantee. So for as much as we do know in fisheries management, there's a lot we don't. And that's always a complicating factor. Do you find that there's pushback or headbutting between the folks on the boats, the folks running um, the, the vessels and, you know, the, the kind of blue collar guys that have been doing this their whole life and the scientists that are saying, hey, we've been doing samples and like these are these stocks are going down and you should we should look at the quotas and like, is there a lot of headbutting between there do you think that's no, holding things back everyone always gets along so perfectly yeah okay that's what i thought good <laughs> yeah. no we wish for sure yeah that's always going to be kind of the push pull in fisheries management especially because you know fishermen it's their livelihood so if somebody tells them that you can't you have to catch half of what you caught last year what does that mean for their family and you know what right. how do they you know provide and they might go out and say, hey, I see all this cod. I'm the one on the water every day. You take a survey like, you know, once every two years. So, you know, I would know. But at the same time, the scientific community isn't trying to say, well, we just don't want you to be able to catch fish. They want they want you to be able to catch fish, not just you, but your son and your grandson. Right. Continue so to do yeah. it for years and years and years and generations. And, you know, so and they have technology and, and knowledge. And again, they're being precautionary because they don't want to crash a stock because a stock can take decades to return and sometimes they never do. So, you know, it's definitely that push pull between science and management. I think we've gotten a lot better over the last many years. Um, it's taken some of the scientists to kind of be open and, you know, listen to what the feedback they're getting from the fisheries. But it also has been taking some of the fishing guys to say, hey, you know, we have more knowledge than we ever had before. How can we incorporate that to you know, make our yeah. How can we benefit from this? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it's kind of a bummer that we can't get as many cod per year. Yep. But how can we use this knowledge to get you know something else? Have some other benefit for our, yeah for ourselves. So that's yeah, that's fascinating. I feel like you don't see as much of that in aquaculture because you don't. because it is new, and I think a lot of people that are developing aquaculture technology are very much in line with mm -hmm. the updated science yep. that that's out there right now. So um, it's not as much of that. This is how we've always done it kind of exactly. mentality. You know, the big difference is aquaculture is privately owned. So, you know, businesses can make yeah, choices true. on how, yep. how they want to run their farm or run their operation. And if it is a bad choice and something bad happens, you know, they're solely responsible for that. But fisheries, it's a common resource and scientists have to do what's right for everybody. You know, they have to do what's right for the entire fishery. 
uh, for by you know bycatch if there is some sort of endangered species that is getting caught they can't just think about what species the people are catching for food but what does that do to the entire ecosystem but fishers are using this to feed their family and they've been doing so for a hundred years it's mm -hmm. what their father and their grandfather did it's what they want their sons and their grandsons or granddaughters daughters and granddaughters to do and so you know it's definitely a balancing act yeah and I don't think that there's anyone out there that's really just evil and just doesn't want people to continue doing what they've always done and what they love to do and to feed their families so you know we really need to get everyone on the same page there speaking of stocks being replenished mm -hmm. do you know any update about the crash of the cod industry in northeastern canada like since that was in the early 90s has yeah. anything changed um so this is a perfect example of sometimes the things that you've done can it's hard to undo them so um the uh -oh, stock. That's not a good start. I was excited to, to, uh, yeah, to hear uh, this is how they come back. That this one was. Um, no, the stocks have been replenished. So the fishery is, is open, which is a great start. For many, many years, it wasn't open. And they're continuing to, you know, it's one of those things where they're continuing to manage. It was open at a certain level, and they realized they weren't hitting their recruitment targets. So it decreased again. Um, you know, they have to make reductions of quotas and then, you know, depending on different years and what they know. But it's certainly not to the level it was. And they've had a really hard time balancing that management. There mm -hmm. are other stocks that, you know, we, we could tell success stories just because that one isn't necessarily the shining star. There are definitely great success stories out there of fisheries that have, you know, adapted their management, put in good practices, put in good enforcement. And we've seen not only an increase in stock, but also um, a stability of supply, which is not only important for the fishermen to kind of have some consistent idea of what they might be able to catch and what they might be able to make, but important for the industry. It's really hard to sell something that you have this year but won't have next year if you make a product everyone loves and says, oh, well, too bad. Next year you can't have it. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that consistency you, of supply is important. And you can only have important. so many premium products where yeah. there's such a scarcity that the prices are go sky yeah. high. and yeah. No, you can't really live off that model yeah, for very long. Exactly. So. What about environmental impacts? And, you know, I know there's been a lot of big technology in the last 10 mm -hmm. years or so with things like turtle exclusion devices and different yeah. technologies for fishing gear itself. Um, I feel like that's a pretty bright spot when we're talking about potential yeah. sustainability I issues. I mean, technology, you know, in any industry can really change the way that the industry operates or has an impact. And there's been a lot of really great gear devices out there, turtle excluder devices or TEDs that we call them. It's a great example, you know, like figuring out a change that allows your your shrimp to go in, but the turtle to escape because you don't want to catch the turtles and fishermen don't want to catch the turtles. And a lot of times, you know, the bycatch, it's just, you know, they're not intended they don't want that. That doesn't make their life easier. So there's a financial benefit to using gear that is more targeted towards your, your species um, or that limits the amount of catch that you might take of endangered species, which would you know totally cut off your ability to fish, perhaps. Right. You know, there are some what we call choke species. If you catch too many of this, you have to stop fishing for all the other ones because of the, you know, the low stock of that one. Do you have any examples of that? I've never yeah. heard of that. So, so the New England fisheries are actually managed on what we call sectors. And it's so all the species are kind of managed together. You get a quota for a certain number of species, but if you have a very low quota for one, um, it's called a choke species, which essentially means if you take too much 
of that, that sec- you're kind of closed for that sector mm-hmm. because of the bycatch that you take. So you have to be really careful. So that's <laughs> when, you know, targeted nets or targeted gears come in. And that's usually for, you know, a multi-species fishery where you can't really distinguish. Like if you're, you know, dragging a net for cod in New England, you're bound to get some haddock. You're bound right. to get some flounder. Um, so it's really not, a, you're not able to manage one species in individual. Entirely, right. You have to, you know, manage the ecosystem. Um, yeah. So all those different factors. What were we, what was the question? <laughs> technology. <laughs> technology. We, we were just right. talking about, uh, you know, the promise yeah. of technology and, and the environmental impact yeah. of fisheries. I mean, exactly. So it's, it's benefit to the fishermen and it's benefit to the habitat and the impact. So there's a lot of different opportunities there. Yeah. Yeah. That's like really convenient that it's in the best interest of the people and also the environment to use this technology. Yeah. Cause I feel like with it's hard with environmentalism. Sometimes those don't always align, mm-hmm. and sometimes, oftentimes, they don't. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes price is exclusionary. So in this case, that's a really good. Yeah, the best sustainability. Outlook. You know, the best sustainability stories or success stories typically come when there's an economic benefit, or even not an economic benefit, but uh, an ease to entry. If you think about recycling, if you look at recycling in rates in towns that have curbside versus towns that don't, you know, drastic difference. I lived in Michigan my whole life and there you got a 10 cent return on soda cans or pop cans as we would call them. <laughs> and you know what? Every grocery trip my job was to turn pop cans in. I moved to New Hampshire and it's five cents. Not worth it to me. <laughs> they go in my recycling. So you, if there's an economic, you know, benefit to changing your action, then you're definitely more likely to do that. So if there's an economic benefit to more efficient engines, lower your fuel costs, you know, mm. more targeted yeah. nets. The problem is those engines, catch. those cars that have those engines are just way beyond the price range of anyone who could get one right now. Yes, there I had can a be Tesla get on entry, the interstate yeah. today that blew, went zero to 90. Like they go zero, so I didn't fast. realize they went that fast. Yeah. I caught up to it in my truck. (laughs) (laughs) So there are definitely barriers of entry. If, let's say, a new engine comes out, a lot of boats may not be able to afford to put it on. But, you know, that's, you know, one of the areas that we have to, you know, as an industry, we have to think about, like, how can we support fishermen to make better choices? Right. And you don't really want to do the the opposite where something like with, like, plastic bags, if you want plastic bags, it's going to cost you five cents each. Because then ultimately it's doing good for the environment, but socially and emotionally Mm -hmm. you're creating some tension with things like, with situations like that. There can always be unintended consequences. You know, the straw debate is a really good, you know, Mm -hmm. example of that. People That's a good straws. example, too, of, you know, consumers and headlines really forcing businesses, restaurants to kind of make decisions on what their stance is by saying, I mean, there's a lot of restaurants we go to now that just no straws when you get mm-hmm. something. And I'm, we're all fine with that. Yeah. Except yeah. for my two and a half year old who gets milk all over himself. But <laughs> <laughs> bring yeah. one of those. It's one less straw in the ocean. Straws. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that is the trick of sustainability, right? Like there is not. Ever, I can't think of a good example in sustainability where you could just make a decision or an action that is just broadly perfect for everyone, right? There's always going to be unintended consequences. There's always going to be maybe a negative impact in one area, even if there's a really big positive impact in another area. Um, We always say don't let perfection be the enemy of good. There are steps you can take. You can move in the right direction. But if you constantly are waiting for something, that's going to satisfy all people in all areas and have no possible negative impact, you'll never get anything done. So, you know, make good decisions. (laughs) 
Has there been any data ever since uh, the wild fisheries has, has really made all these changes and regulations? Has there been any data that's shown a decrease in maybe the amount of people who are getting into that profession? I mean, are we seeing a decrease of... You know, I mean, it's that's expensive equipment, and I wonder if some of these regulations and you know, if the money's not there for certain people, like what's the point of starting yeah. up or seeing certain businesses that have been successful that now have shift gears to something else? Yeah, I mean, I don't have any like hard, fast numbers for you right off the top of my head. Um, you don't? No, oh, darn. <laughs> no, shoot. Come on. <laughs> I told her not to prepare for this interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't look up any numbers. The numbers will be in the show notes, maybe. Um, but. I think anecdotally in a lot of the fisheries, you see that there has been a decline in people entering the industry. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's attributed to management or this movement of sustainability. You know, I think I actually think young fishermen or fisherwomen are drawn to that, drawn to being a part of a sustainable industry Mm -hmm. more so than, you know, they would have been maybe 50, 60 years ago. But let's be real, it's hard work. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you are driven by the tides. There's no such thing as a Saturday or Sunday. If the weather's great and the season's open, you're out. You're, you know, leaving at three in the morning and coming home at, you know, eight o'clock at night. If it's a day trip, it might be a, you know, you might be on a vessel that catches months at a time. So you have to kind of have it in your blood. You have to love it. You have to really, you know, want to be into it, in it. And it's hard work. And, that can sometimes be a drawback for folks. Not that folks don't want to do hard work, but, you know, it's a specific type of work. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that is definitely something that we're working on, you know, that the industry has to be aware of is maintaining the ability to bring in fresh new talent. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I was wondering because if there was a data showing that there has been a decline, I wondered if, if that would possibly fast track maybe some of the recovery um, of certain species if, you know, they can recover just as less chance of bycatch or just yeah catching i mean and a lot of times you know fish there's a lot of different ways you can manage a fishery you know we talked about sectors quota is a really popular one where boats have a certain amount that they can catch and individual operations get a certain amount of quota and in fisheries like that you typically can't have just a any old number of boats you want you have to have specific Mm -hmm. boats and they have to have quota and they have to keep fishing year after year or risk losing their quota so there have been times where fishery management decisions have been made that have had to significantly lower the number of boats in a fleet um, and fishing pressure. But, you know, again, it had to be, it has to be a decision that's good for the fishery and the, and the fishermen. Mm-hmm. So what are we looking at in terms of kind of the best choices for species? And obviously that depends where you are. Yep. And we have listeners all over the world. So yep. if you could go through every country one sure. by one, one by that one would be ideal. Every species. Um, but, you know, if, if folks are going out and looking to, to buy some seafood and they decide that they're, they're not picky about wild caught versus mm-hmm. aquaculture, whatever, um, let's say they're buying wild caught fish. What are some good choices for them or what are some bad choices for them. I'll give you one right now. Please don't go buy a shark. (laughs) Well, yeah, although there are some species that are technically sharks that are considered well-managed. So dogfish is technically a shark species, um, and it's an underutilized species on the east coast of the United States, and it actually has really healthy stocks and typically has fishermen that are not catching their quota, and it's the same fishermen that would typically catch cod. So, you know, this is an opportunity for them to kind of explore an alternative species. Um, Uh, Justin, we're talking about fish, not the beer. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> <Doc>. <laughs> I, I, I just have to laugh because I did think of the beer when you first said it. <laughs> In my head, I was like, but, I, but I always talk but about beer on the show. So I know, I the, I know I the face you it. make. I know the face that you make when you start thinking about beer. I saw uh, Yeah, I started to drift. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> my first question always is if you are going to go to the, if you're going to go to the seafood counter and it's too confusing for you and you think to yourself, I don't know what to buy. If you're going to go next door to buy the ground beef, then please just buy seafood because you also have to think about there's a lot of environmental impacts that we don't necessarily associate when we think about like, oh, you know, fisheries. We think about management, stocks, habitat, bycatch. But, you know, in the broader scheme of things, you also have to think about carbon, water use, feed use. And when you're thinking about that, seafood in general is a more efficient, less water, less feed protein. And so I encourage people in general to eat seafood over potential other proteins. But if you're committed to fish and you want to make sure it's the best species, there are a lot of different options. In, and again, it's going to change on the region that you're in. How about As, our region? Our region. So in New England, you know, haddock is a great choice. I really, I really like haddock. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, pretty, the stock is pretty healthy here. Scallops, if people like scallops, another healthy. These are both this certification, or these are MSC certified. Dogfish, you know, if you're looking for something different or an alternative, um, ask your fish counter, you know, ask them what's local, ask, you know, if if it's sustainable. You can always look for a certification mark. Alaska, you know, if you're on the West Coast or you're craving salmon but don't want farmed, Alaska has great fisheries management. They're kind of the gold star, we would say, in the U.S. And they have, you know, Pacific cod, they have halibut, you know, they have salmon, all well-managed coming out of the West Coast. So it really depends on your goal, what you want. Do you want something oily, like a sardine? Or um, do you want something light and white like a haddock or a pacific cod potentially are you looking more for something local or do you want sustainability you really have to you know determine what is most important to you when you choose seafood what about poor choices so is there something we should stay away from i mean i think a lot of people think like okay i want to stay away from things like tuna steak or swordfish prefer mercury content bioaccumulation things like that but from a sustainability point of view, is there something that we really should probably take a backseat on for now? You know, there are some species that just, you know, one of the big things that plays a role in sustainable stocks is the biology of the fish. Can they, you know, how fast are they reproducing? At what age do they reproduce? And the fish that take a really long time to reproduce and don't have very many babies at a time are very hard to manage. Um, the ones that are very long, long lived. So, you know, sort of the, the species we think about are sharks for sure you know, other than dogfish. Bluefin tuna, they're big and they take a long time to reproduce and they don't reproduce very quickly. You know, those are two that I personally stay away from. Orange roughy is sort of something that was very popular in the 80s and we don't see it very often anymore. It's making a little bit of a comeback. Patagonian toothfish, which is best known by Chilean sea bass. I'm not saying they're all bad. Okay. There's actually like, some. I've never heard um, of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about good toothfish. marketing, changing your name from Patagonia toothfish to Chilean sea bass and, yeah, you know, right. sales skyrocket. Fun fact, that's what they are served in Jurassic Park. Mm. Wow. After the raptor attack or <laughs> the raptor feeding, they are served Chilean sea bass. Yeah. And it's not, not all the stocks are it's bad. It's crazy you change your name. Knowledge. And, 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 drops. You know, but look for certification when you're looking at some of the things like orange roughy or Chilean sea bass because they're good and there are some bad and the biology of those fish kind of lend themselves to be easily mm. overfished. So those are my kind of four that I would stay away from or, pretend, you know, ask questions about before I dove right in. Good those are know. some good I tips. I appreciate that, yeah. Because yeah. I love haddock. 
you're oh. go, you're pretty good to go with Haddock. I our, love me some Haddock. Pretty sure all Haddock is MSC certified. It's either going to come from our coast or it's going to come from the North Atlantic, which is also an MSC certified. Yeah, it's the typical when you buy fish and chips. It's usually mm-hmm. Haddock. It's usually Haddock. Haddock. Yeah, well, around here at least. Yeah, mm-hmm. around yeah. here. So yeah. yeah, if you're looking for white fish, that's a really great um, option. Again, if you're looking for salmon and you want it from the West Coast, any of the the wild Alaskan is great. Wild Alaskan Pacific cod is also a really good white fish option. You said you can get scallops that are MSC certified? Yes. So the New Bedford Scallop Industry, which is the largest in the world for that type of scallop, is MSC certified as well. Interesting. So how can consumers, what can consumers look for? They can look for certification marks for sure. You did talk about this a little bit. Um, Outside of just kind of that easy mark, um, it really, you know, you have to ask questions. You have to ask your fishmonger. You have to ask your fish counter. If they don't know, then maybe gently encourage them to say, hey, that's kind of important to me as a customer. It would be great if I could get that information next time I I swing by. Mm -hmm. Um, There are also, you know, ranking lists out there by different organizations that kind of say red, yellow, green. Green being good, good to go. Yellow means there could be some issues with the fishery. Red meaning, you know, don't, you know, take that with some grain of salt because they're broadly looked at the fishery instead of necessarily um, regionally. So, you know, getting a species that might be red listed in your local fish market doesn't necessarily mean that that that's not a good choice. It has a low carbon footprint. It's fresh. And, you know, they could still be working within the fishery regulations. Good advice. Right on. Yeah. Well, been here for a while. Okay. I don't want to keep you too long. It's all right. It's You're been very fun. You're very busy. But um, where do you think we're headed in the future? You think we're going in the right direction? You're feeling good about wild-caught fisheries and where it's headed and how yes. they've been doing? Yeah, yeah, I do. I feel good. I feel like a lot of progress has been made. The where we are today versus where we were 30 years ago is drastically different. There's so much more knowledge and consciousness about sustainable seafood. The one thing I want to see happen for us in 20 years in the fishing slash seafood industry is more consumption. Again, I you know we, we stress it all the time, but it's it's an efficient, healthy protein, and we should be eating more of it. And sure, every industry has its issues. Every industry has good actors and bad actors. But for a global planet and a global environmental footprint, mm-hmm. we really should be looking to, to feed the future in seafood. Yeah. So what can we do? What can our listeners do? What can Justin and Maddie and myself do to help move things forward? You know, I think the obvious answer is... Eat more seafood, Eat more seafood. and <laughs> ask questions. You know, that, that's yep. what everyone kind of says when we say, what can we do? What can our listeners do? But uh, is there anything that you would say is a, an action that anyone can take to really help with this? Huh. I mean, other than the two that we already mentioned, ask questions, eat more seafood. You know, those would be my two yeah, big. Just kind of look, yeah. just educate yourself. Yeah. You know, learn. Know what you're looking up. for. Know what your priorities are when it comes to picking out your seafood. It has to be something you like. It has to be something... You can, you can afford, hopefully by listening to this podcast, you know, the episodes and this episode, you realize that you can choose farmed or wild. You don't have mm-hmm. to say one is better than the other. You don't, you know, if you, if that fresh Atlantic cod is not in your weekly budget this week, that's okay. You know, you can go choose the, you know, the slightly less expensive choice because it's still good for you. It's still been, you know, we can still make sure it's been produced in a way that's good for the environment and good for people. And I would say lastly, on top of that, just my advice would be don't settle. Yeah. Like you said, if you are confused by the seafood counter, don't settle for another pound of ground beef. Go figure out or try something new. Yeah. But mm-hmm. find something that's in your budget and start there. Yeah. Uh, because if if 
you're eating seafood, then that's the first step. Yeah. Well, there's your question right there. It's these are the species that I like. What haven't I tried that's in this price range that can mimic some of that? Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid to try different species. That's the other kind of big difference between farmed Mm -hmm. and wild is there are lots of different farm species out there, but commercially we we pretty much stick to the same five or six. But there are, you know, thousands of wild species available. Um, If you shop at a fishmonger, that's awesome. If you don't, that's okay too. Even your counter will, you know, change based on what they can get for fresh. But, you know, if you know you like something, don't be afraid to maybe adventure out. There are a lot of different options. Everything has a unique taste. It's not just fish. You know, you might say, I don't like fish. Well, maybe you don't like whitefish, but maybe Mm. you do like swordfish or maybe you like salmon or maybe you like clams. So how do you feel about the other kind of less commercially things like octopus or squid? Or Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty commercial, but, you know, it's not something that most people when they go buy fish, they're going to buy a white fish, or yep. maybe they'll buy mussels. Yeah. Um, what about you know things like crustaceans and some some of the less common species? Mm-hmm. Are, are those still good choices to make? They're just not as popular in our region. Yeah, That's I all mean, it is? a lot. Yeah, I mean, again, it really depends on this on the species. Um, octopus or squid is an interesting example. They're actually the complete on the complete opposite side of what we were talking about earlier. They're so short lived that they're hard to figure out how many there are because you can't figure out, you know, their lifespan is really, really short. Yeah. But yeah, you know, people have been working on squid and octopus fisheries, bringing them up to sustainability. A lot of work has been done in that area. Um, you know, wild shrimp, lobster is obviously a good example of something that's not just a, a white fish, right. uh, maybe special occasion fish. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, there are a lot of different options out there. And again, if you're unsure, like, you can always ask, but you can always just try it, you know. And if you the- hate it, then don't get it next week. Yeah, exactly. You, you talk about, you know, the, sometimes pe- consumers can be scared because everyone knows maybe how to flip a burger on a grill, but not everyone knows how to cook a filet of, mm-hmm. of fish is a little bit more tricky. Not all fish. Some, I mean... Yeah, we have. Well, we should link to some I of those recipes. Fish, really fish easy, is but. easy. It's easy to mess up. Yeah. yeah, is what it is. But you mentioned um, if you are in that mode of I want to try something new in the seafood world, then try it at a restaurant where you can trust, yep. mm-hmm. you know, the chef there who knows how to prepare it properly, yeah. so you can see if you like it or not. 100%. Yeah, percent. That's always love a good that. way to practice or find out what species you like. They'll prepare it. You know. That's why I love the Boston Seafood Expo. I've tried so many different species since I started going to, <laughs> to, to that, and whew, that has opened my world up. To What's the, the weirdest thing you've ever tried there? The weirdest thing? I wouldn't. I don't want to say it was the weirdest, but I did try. Haddock. Was it Barramundi? <laughs> it was something like that. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Barramundi. Yeah. White it might have been Barramundi. I've heard the term before, but never had it. And I'm, sh- I'm sure it's relatively common, but the chef that just the aroma that was coming from the booth and I just kind of his body feet just wasn't touching the ground and I kind of floated over to it. I was like, what is this? Yeah. It's like, here, try one or two. Some of the best like, shrimp oh. cocktail I've ever had was from the floor at closing time. Yeah. <laughs> the seafood yeah. show when people are just throwing shrimp at you trying to get, get yeah. uh, the product out there without throwing it away. Yeah. Awesome. Katie, thank you so much. Thanks for, for having us. me. This is fun. I'm sure we'll have you on again. I hope you weren't too nervous. You're feeling good. Yes. You did a very good job. Yep. If any of our listeners want to learn more, where can they go? They can come to our website, www.seafoodassurances.org, or they can Google sustainable seafood. You'll get plenty of websites. If you're interested in the certifications that we've talked about today, MSC or you know the Alaskan Seafood Marketing Institute, msc.org, that one's pretty easy. I would just say go to Google, put in sustainable seafood, and you'll start a fun 
fun journey. So. Yep. <laughs> and I'd say avoid some of the, the uh, super aggressive headlines because yes. that's not going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, find someone that is, is on the positive end yeah. that's looking to make a difference. So, um, And we'll link to all those things in the show notes. So. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Thank you again, Katie. Thanks, guys. Yes, thank you. so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Folks, that was our conversation with Katie Latke. As always, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something. Hope you learned a few somethings. And Multiple. I, I hope you're excited to go out and try some new wild-caught seafood. I'm feeling pretty jazz. I think I might go to the grocery store after this. <laughs> feeling cute. Might eat some dogfish. <laughs> Probably cute. Might eat some dogfish later. <laughs> <laughs> eat some dogfish later. Yeah, no big thing. Just gonna eat some dogfish. She called me out on that. I was yeah. like, I was like, don't yep. eat shark. And that she's was like, good. actually. So I learned something. She today. knows her stuff. She's yeah. no joke. Yeah, no. She. It was. Uh, that was an awesome conversation. I. I'm excited to hear more about where the wild caught industry goes from here, and uh, I'm excited to get some more wild caught seafood practitioners in to talk about what they do and, and what they're seeing in the industry. Yeah, so if any of you listeners have any contacts you think might be a good fit to have on the podcast, feel free to email us, podcast at aquaculturealliance.org. Or give us a call, 1-603-384-3560. That's right, and as always, like we said in the beginning, make sure you rate and review the show. That really helps us be seen by other people who are searching their those podcast apps. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Swoop, Bullhorn FM, wherever you listen. If you're listening to this podcast, you can subscribe to us there. So make sure that you do that and tell your friends. And follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. We're doing weekly polls, so make sure you jump on there and participate in our poll. We've gotten a lot of votes. We posted one this morning and a bunch of people are weighing in about their New Year's resolution. So make sure to get on that. All right. Happy 2020. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.